Welcome back to True Crime Trine, the podcast where the planets align. Three-ish friends talk about true crime, astrology, and any other weird bullshit they can fit into this podcast. We are your hosts, Hannah. And Meredith. And mm, is Sarah not being here? (laughs) Welcome to episode 67. What's in Rocky when he's he's yelling? Is it Stella? I've never seen Rocky. Or no. I think Stella is a streetcar named Desire. Oh, yes. Which I've also never read or seen, but. <laughs> oh, I'm so dumb. Okay. So in the streetcar named Desire, where he's like, Stella, should we just always be like, Sarah, <laughs> we miss you. There's like a TikTok or something, like a short video that Kirk found and it was like some guy stuck in a canoe and he's just going Sarah help Sarah help <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> all right well it's just the two of us so any housekeeping I don't have I do have I do <laughs> I don't do <laughs> Jesus Christ <laughs> folks it's been a fucking hell of a week but I do have some housekeeping it may be housekeeping I shared before I'm not sure because I don't remember anymore I'm old really old but we would like to welcome Rhode Island or just say hello again thanks for listening because we don't remember if we welcomed you if we've welcomed you already let us know and if not and if you're my best friend Jessica let us know yeah and if you're not my best friend Jessica let us know because I want to know who's listening to us in Rhode Island. I know. Who are you? All right. Awesome. May or may not have a new state. Love it. I do have Cat Corner with Hannah. Let's hear it. So I have probably the last two years been letting my cats go out into the backyard unsupervised. It's completely unlandscaped, but it is fenced and mm-hmm. they both have three legs. So I figured it was safe. They couldn't get out. And then I walked out the other fucking day. And I saw Morris on top of the fucking fence. Oh, no. And I was just like, the fuck you doing, bro? And then I grabbed him off. And I was like, no, we cannot do this. (laughs) This is not okay. And then I was a little bit dumb and was like, maybe he's learned a lesson. (laughs) No, that time he got on the fence and then jumped over the fence. Oh, no. Thankfully, not into my neighbor's backyard where their two large dogs were, but into the front yard. But I did, I caught him right away, and he was meowing very nervously. He's like, what the fuck did I just and do, like, Mom? And I can't get back in. I don't know what happened. So he's just like, well. I've only got three legs. Bro. He's kind of fucked up outside time, which was g- great for me. Mm-hmm. And then today, I let them out before I was doing a review session and I but supervised. But I, I pretended I wasn't looking and I came back and he was on the fucking fence again. Oh, son of a bitch. So now he's like, freedom. No, he was still meowing very concernedly, but uh so now uh Wobbles gets outdoor time and Morris oh, is not. Sorry, kind Morris. Of fucked everything up, Morris. That's karma Morris for when you attacked your mom the other week and it was really, really bad. All those times. That one was, like, terrible. That was a bad one. (laughs) Hannah sends us this picture. Her arm is, like, completely maimed. Bad kitty. 
That was a bad one. Because I knew it happened. And then I looked down like five minutes later. I'm like, holy shit, I'm bleeding a lot. (laughs) And had to go take care of that. I have a little scar now. So fuck you, Boris. Why do you have to be so fucking smart and stupid at the same time? But so handsome. Very handsome. And a very cuddly sweet boy until he's done and wants to bite you. Well, you know, overstimulation. It's okay, though. Morris has two back legs, so he is able to jump on the garbage can and then up onto the fence. I'm still letting Wobbles go outside unsupervised, and he likes it more. He spends hours out there, and he Mm -hmm. only has one back leg. I don't think it can jump onto the trash can. He doesn't have the hops to get up there. He does not have the hops, so... So he still gets outside time, but it was more convenient when they could both have outside time. Yeah, absolutely. So, cat corner. Fuckers. Bad kitty, good kitty. Kitty, kitty, kitty. Get your shit together. I know, right? All right. Well, are you ready for this trip? Mm-hmm. I am finally going to take you on a trip across the pond. Oh! I will spare you my very unauthentic British accent. So you're welcome. I opened my mouth to say something and then realized I got nothing. I think the last time we were in England was Pip Pip Cheerio in the Hoo Hole. Oh, yeah. John Christie. John Christie. I think mm-hmm. Sarah actually had a decent British accent. She might be the best at accents out of all of us. Well, I don't know if she can beat my southern accent when I've been drinking. Well. And I'm actually in the south with my family because it's pretty thick. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. So, I am taking you to Liverpool, England, which is known for many things, but most famously is the home of the Beatles. Liverpool is a major seaport in northwest England, and it sits on the north shore of the Mersey River, close to the Irish Sea. It is a major trading port and also boasts a number of historical areas, which I know we all love. And one of the most iconic areas is Castle Street, which is located on the waterfront. And it was originally known for banking, but now it is a go-to place for foodies like us. Yum! And for some additional sightseeing, there are some absolutely fabulous historical buildings like the Royal Liver Building and Pierhead. So it may be fun to make a stop in Liverpool on our way to Kilkenny in 2025, 2026. Hell yeah. Maybe. We'll see. We'll see. So the story that I have for you tonight is about William Herbert Wallace, or as I will refer to him, the luckiest man in England, question mark. <laughs> okay. He should come to Vegas with us? Um, he died. Oh, well. This is also one of Hannah's favorite types of cases. Is it historical, please? It is. Yay! It is historical. Not as way, 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 way back as you've gone before, but it is still... I don't think I'll go as far back as Alice ever again. No. There's just not enough documentation. <laughs> William Herbert Wallace was born on August 29th of 1878. Okay. So he is a Virgo. Okay. Well, I do like Virgos to my own detriment. I would just hold on to that. Hold on to that liking of the Virgos. I'll tuck that away then. It has hurt me in the past. William was born in Malome. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Malome. I'm going to go Malome. You know what? I'm going to fucking own it. Malome. 
Tell me I'm wrong. Say it with confidence. That's how you teach college courses. <laughs> Sweet. In Malone, England, to Benjamin and Marjorie Wallace, William was the oldest of the three Wallace children, followed by his brother Joseph in 1880 and his sister Jessie in 1883. Decent space. Spaced out and only three. Nice job. Solid grouping there. For the 1800s. Yeah. I mean, and they're not like 5,000 kids, so. Yeah. <laughs> Three's reasonable. <laughs> Any more than three is starting to become unreasonable. In my case, more than one was unreasonable. I'm limiting myself to two cats with the rule that I only have two hands. So at most, I can only be touching two cats at one time. I mean, it is a good rule. Unfortunately for me in my house, my husband has put down his hammer that we can only have two indoor cats. But he did say that the porch was fair game. Sadly, I am mm. I am still missing my porch cat, so. Ah, oh, Godspeed, Spooks. I know. Such a beautiful boy. But anyways, moving on. In 1888, the Wallace family moved to Blackpool, Lancashire. William contracts typhoid fever. This was common. Solid. In this time. Yeah. He did survive, but many surmise that typhoid fever was the cause of his kidney issues, and he had substantial kidney issues throughout his life. On a side note, typhoid fever is caused by salmonella, and typhoid fever is rare in developed countries. It is a serious health threat in the developing world, though, especially for children, and Contaminated food and water or close contact with an infected person can cause typhoid fever. As the infection progresses, you may lose appetite, feel sick, have a tummy ache, or diarrhea. You may also develop a rash. If the typhoid fever is not treated, the symptoms will continue to worsen, and over the following weeks, you have the risk of developing a potentially fatal complication. I believe the salmonella can outcompete other things in your gut, and so it overgrows. Mm-hmm. It's not good, folks. Not an expert on salmonella, but... Giardia. I know a Downstairs. couple people who worked in a salmonella lab, so... All right. I mean, still, still poopy. Yeah, very poopy. All right. In 1890, the Wallaces moved again to Dalton and Furness, and this is a town name... Just FYI, I didn't just make it up. <laughs> I think Hannah covered like the funny names oh, in so weird. England, right? I, I love, love them. It. Like hoo hole, hoo hole. Oh, I think it might have been hoo ha. No, it was hoo hole. It was hoo hole, and I yeah. said hoo ha. All right, we got it. But so this town was Dalton in Furness. I don't know why. I didn't look it up. Like I N yep. Furness. But F-U-R-N-E-S-S. Sure. Why not? Why not? And William, 12 at the time, attended the Dalton Board Boys School where he enjoyed just your standard childhood activities like climbing trees and swimming in local ponds. From most accounts, William had a really normal and happy childhood. He enjoyed school immensely and he showed interest in all areas of academia, especially in music. According to an 1881 census, I did a little dive into some historical and some ancestry documentation. 
Benjamin sure. was a printer master. And essentially, that's someone who prints shit. So there you go. Got it. <laughs> and from what I can gather, at least, the Wallace family was pretty well-to-do in the time. I mean, they weren't like your upper echelon, you know, royalty yeah. or anything like that. But they were they were doing pretty well for themselves. In 1892, William, at the age of 14, started a five-year apprenticeship with Thomas Tennant, training as a draper's assistant. And I did have to look this up. Yeah, I don't know. Because, right, like, chips here and chips in England have different meanings. So I was thinking drapery, but essentially this is a person who sells cloth or is tailoring suits. Okay. So that's that. And I do kind of love that, like, they're like, you're 14 now. Let's get you into position to have a job in the future. I love that. For the rest of your life, you could have this job. Thank you. Not necessarily for the rest of your life, but just, like, they were promoting these apprenticeships where you could learn a trade. And I'm a very big proponent for learning trades. Yeah. I feel like we're almost coming back to that a little bit. Mm-hmm. My brother went to, like, some, I forgot what it's called, but it was in high school. He went half a day to this other place, and it was, like, it had a nursing section. He was in the computer section, so you got more, like, real-world, hands-on type of things to work on. Exactly. And especially if you don't know what you want to do, but you're good at something, let's just... I'm going to just use like woodworking, for instance. If you were good at woodworking, you might want to focus on something that you're already like interested in and skilled at and pursue a career in that versus going the route of a four-year degree. Mm-hmm. 100%. I kind of love that back in the 1890s, this was a thing in England that they were promoting these apprenticeships, but... I don't 100% love that it's like 14, you're like, get the fuck out, go to work, but... But you don't have kids. So. <laughs> True. As a child. <laughs> imagining me at 14. True. But he's still at home with his parents. So he's not like living with this okay. person. He is just going a few hours a day to train with him and learn the skills of the trade or the tricks of the trade. But William finished his apprenticeship and he did gain employment with Whiteway. Laidlaw and Company as a salesman in the drapery department. And Whiteway Laidlaw and Company is or was a department store that specialized in tailoring and then household goods. So suits, dresses, and other common household goods. It was very popular among officers of the British Armed Forces as well as the Colonial Indian and Diplomatic Services. So it is important here to note that the British Raj was the rule of the British crown over the Indian subcontinent at the time, and it went from 1858 to 1947. So it was, India was essentially a colony of... I honestly didn't know it went on that long. ...of Britain. So that's some years. Post-World War II. Exactly, Yeah. And then in 1902, like late 1902, early 1903, William, at the age of 25, actually moved to Calcutta, India to work at a Whiteway Laidlaw and Company store. That is such a fucking tongue twister of a name. 
So William worked for two years in Calcutta before he became very ill due to his kidney issues. In April of 1905, William decided that it was time to kind of move on from Calcutta. It's got a super hot climate over there. Worse than the closet I'm in. Yes, or wherever I am right now, which is super hot for some reason. (laughs) So Calcutta is like 80 plus all year round, but like they don't really have like summer, winter, fall. And like for like six months, it's like 95 plus. Is it really humid? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what we don't have over here that makes it bearable. It's a lot. So William decides that he needs a milder climate. And his brother, Joseph, was also working for White Way <laughs> Lane Law and Company in Shanghai, China. So William moved to Shanghai, and Shanghai has a temperate climate, so he was able to get, you know, that seasonal, or just seasons, actually, he was able to get... Just seasons in general. Yeah. He's gone to places I've never been able to go in the modern times. Oh, yeah. But I think that might be partially because of colonialism. Yes, definitely, I would say. Played a huge part in that, but... Huge part. William really enjoyed the milder climate in Shanghai, and he went from a salesman to working as an advertising manager for the company. However, in 1906, William would fall ill again due to his chronic kidney issues. He ended up having two operations and suffered some pretty severe complications and developed some abscesses on his right kidney. That gross. And at this time, with his health, like, just... In question, William decided that it was going to be best to return to England to his family, and so he did so in March of 1907 at the age of 29. Did he have to sail around, like, Africa, or were there trains? I don't know if he took a boat or a train. Because that's a long-ass boat ride, and you have abscesses on your kidneys. Cannot be good. Whatever method of transportation he took, when he got to England... He was a hurting unit, and he was almost immediately sent to the hospital. Yeah, even a train ride from Shanghai to Mm -hmm. England is going to be a monstrosity of a trip in those days. Right. So as soon as he gets back to England, he was hospitalized again. He had his left kidney removed, and this left him out of work for over 18 months. Wow. And during this time, he was living with his father and his mother and his sister. So he did have support from his family. So, and they were living in Harrogate. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. That's what we're going with. We're very American. Sorry. I'm trying. In 1911, William, at the age of 33, gained employment with the Liberal Party in Harrogate as a liberal registration agent. I wasn't really interested in learning more about this, so there you go. Yeah, we can just not talk about political parties. Exactly. Ever. Yep, I would Well, not. I might bring up Republicans sometimes, but I'll refrain. I just, I'm like, ooh, I don't want to. So I didn't. I can't promise that we will not talk about political parties, but we will try not to. Just as much as we cannot promise that we will not talk about poop. So there's that. Yeah, or cats. We would never promise that, though. No, no. That's stupid. Not as three cat-owning people. No, no, no. 
Actually, we're owned by our cats. But anyways, that's a whole nother topic. Side note, I did a review session for I'm teaching this summer microbiology lab. And so I had a review session. They have their first test coming up on Monday. And so there's a practice exam from a previous quarter. And so one of the last questions was like, in 2052, your daughter is going to UC Davis. And I was like reading it out loud. I'm like, oh, I don't have a daughter. Oh, I don't have a son either. I changed it to my cat is going to UC Davis. And all the students were just like, oh, God. <laughs> I was like, I don't want kids. I want my cat with opposable thumbs to learn microbiology. That would be amazing. What a smart boy. Hell to the yeah. I love that, though. I also made the joke that I might be still teaching there in, in 2052, <laughs> which they did enjoy. I am funny. That's not that many years. It really isn't. If I got lectureship position eventually, then I could just stay there forever if I wanted to. Yeah. I applied to four jobs today. Oh, good for you. And I'm qualified for at least two of them, like actually qualified. Excellent. One of them reached out to me. So Seriously? You're being recruited. Ooh, you can ask I for more money. It counts. It's just they see you and they send you an email in Cal Careers and you apply for the job or not. But I actually kind of think it's really cool, though. It's studying white nose syndrome in bats. Okay. Which would be really interesting. This is my life, guys. This is my day. Anyways, William meets Julia Dennis, who lived just a few blocks away from the Wallace's home on Belmont Road. Julia was a bit of a mystery in herself. Some would claim that she was this shy introvert, while others described her as a bit prideful and quite peculiar. So, Well, sometimes shy can be mistaken for being stuck up. It can. Yeah, for sure. She was a bit of a liar, though. Well, I can't really explain that one away. No. And people wouldn't know this at the at the time, right? But they would find out later. Julia was claiming that she was like a year older than William. But mm -hmm. in actuality, she was 17 years his senior. <laughs> All right. A, a bit older. A little what bit. called? Like a morning-evening relationship or something? Besides cougar, whatever. Yeah. But Julia also told people that her father was a successful veterinarian when, in fact, he was a farmer and a drunk. So. <laughs> so. And who knows? She might have just been embarrassed about her past. I don't know. I, I don't know. Yeah. And sometimes you move to the... I don't know if this is a big city, but you move to the big city and you're like, I don't have to be defined by being mm -mm. a drunkard's daughter anymore. I can be something else. Right. Either way, William was smitten with Julia and the pair courted for about two years before getting married on March 24th of 1914. It was rumored that they were to be married sooner but sadly, William's mother, Marjorie, passed away in October of 1913. William and his father moved in with Julia after their marriage, and William's job with the Liberal Party ended very abruptly as the start of World War I occurred on July 28th of 1914. William did turn his sights onto the army. He very much wanted to join but he was quickly dismissed because... Kidneys don't work, bro. Yeah, he was quickly dismissed because he only had one kidney. He did make six attempts, though, to enlist in the army. Okay. I mean, that's something. 
with a military career like totally out of the question, William signed on with the Prudential Assurance Company, which it's called Assurance, but essentially it's insurance. So we'll just clear that up. I mean, that still exists today, right? It does. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not mad at this company because they really had Williams back. And we'll talk about that later. But William was assigned to the Clubmore District in Liverpool, where he worked as a collections agent. So he would actually like travel to Liverpool during this time to work. And then William's father, Benjamin, passed away in February. And William and Julia decided that it would be more advantageous to move to Liverpool than stay in Harrogate and have him commuting. So they moved to the Clubmore district where he was assigned. And this is kind of like a poor neighborhood of Liverpool at the time. But it was a good decision for them. You know, he's going to be closer to where he's supposed to be working. So in July of 1915, William and Julia rented a home at 29 Wolverton Street. Side note, rent would be 14 shillings and a sixpence or a tanner. I googled this. I was like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and I tried to make sense of like what it was, but I ended up so very confused. So if we have any listeners who would like to educate us on shillings and sixpence, please do so. In what year was this? Like 1915. 15? Yeah. I don't know what it is. I, could, I was like, I don't get it. <laughs> this is why when I went to England for the first time, I was severely jet lagged when I got there and I left my suitcase and stuff at the hotel but I couldn't check in yet because it was like seven in the morning mm-hmm. and so I wandered around Newcastle and I got a coffee and the person at the register said something in a very British accent I was like and she said something about pence and I just like held out my hand and it had coins in it and she just picked them out for me <laughs> help. and then I went to a pub at about 9 a.m and a bunch of retired drunk guys came to talk to me <laughs> Sounds like so much I, fun. I was at a pub at 9 a.m. And they were too, so it was kismet. They didn't have to work. <laughs> That's awesome. So 29 Wolverton Street would be the first home and sadly the last home that William and Julia would share as a couple. Because remember, they've been living with family members up until mm-hmm. this point. William took classes at the Liverpool Technical College to get qualifications in chemistry and electricity, is what it said. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome, okay. Not quite sure what that all entails uh, as far as electricity, but cool. And he ended up getting these qualifications so that he could then lecture at the college to supplement his income, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, he got a lectureship position. Good job, sir. Right? Probably an adjunct. William's hobbies included chemistry, botany, and chess. He loved school. He loved he to learn. He plants with Sarah. Mm-hmm. He could have. And in 1922, William, at the age of 40, with his friend James Card, founded the Central Liverpool Chess Club. William and Julia's life together was simple, but they were described as being lovingly devoted to each other. I don't know whether I should like William, and right now I'm just like, aw. I know. 
I wrote it this way for a reason. I'm feeling touched. Stupidly touched. I just want a simple life. But wait, because it gets even sweeter. Ah, I don't want to hear this bullshit. Julia did not work, but she did attend church regularly. It didn't say which denomination of church, and I don't care, so... Methodist. <laughs> probably. <laughs> it's probably Catholic, honestly, over there, I, I'm eh. thinking, but religion, not my, not my jam. And she also volunteered a lot of her time at the church. And if William wasn't working or teaching or playing chess, he was at home with Julia. And they would have what was described as musical evenings where Julia played the piano and William accompanied her on the violin. And he took up learning the violin specifically to play with his wife, which, oh, I hate everything about this. I know, right? It's too, it's like too much. I know. And I have nothing and this guy who might be an asshole has everything. Well, we'll see. We'll see. I'm just going to throw this out here. It's relevant if you think it's relevant, but I'm going to throw it out here. You can draw your own conclusions later and we will briefly talk about it here in a little bit. But okay. towards the end of December in 1928, William got bronchitis. And I did actually recently just learn that they don't really diagnose bronchitis anymore. Or really any of the itises. So like bronchitis, cyanitis. They're just lumped. Laryngitis. Yeah, they're just lumped into an upper respiratory infection, which is what our doctor told us when we had gone in there. Not COVID, but a stupid fucking upper respiratory infection. So, yay. All right. Anyways, William was out sick from work for about two weeks. Again, guys, this is, you know, late 1920s and... Respiratory infections or, you know, bronchitis. This is, it's not something that's like, I don't know, it's going to be something that's going to, they're not going to have that really powerful antibiotics to kind of like hit that at this time. So, and folks, we're not going to have them for very much longer. So take your fucking antibiotics, but mostly tell farmers to stop giving, ranchers to stop giving the animals because that is what is causing antibiotic resistance. Microbiology corner. I don't know, but I'm going with Hannah on this one because she sounded I am matter a, of fact. 100% sure we are going to die because of some sort of microbe. COVID is not quite the one yet, but our antibiotics are going to stop working. Oh, yeah. Because the bacteria can evolve much faster than we can actually find them and mm-hmm. put them into use. So, Well, I know for me, there's like... There's only one, I think, one antibiotic that even works for me when I need it. And I don't often choose to even take it. Honestly, I kind of just suffer through my symptoms because I do get chronic sinus infections. But mm-hmm. it it just, you know, it just is what it is. Anyways, like I said, William's sick. He's got this upper respiratory infection and he was out of work for two weeks And during his illness, two of his subordinates, so he was their supervisor, Richard Gordon Perry and Joseph Caleb Marston, were apparently misappropriating some of the company funds. Okay. So these guys are collection agents for the insurance company. So they would collect premiums and then they would take it and then they would have to account for it and then turn that into Prudential. Anyways, we'll get back to that. Now we get to the weird, 
the bizarre and the murdery part of the story. Okay, because so far it's been like an okay life. I was going to ask, what are your thoughts about William so far? I'm impressed that he has survived this long with his kidney problems. Mm-hmm. He went through surgeries with before there were antibiotics, but I think we were doing like antiseptic techniques by then. But, um, you know, it seems like a pretty nice middle class life. Yeah. It sounds like his relationship sounds very nice. His health issues, I'm not jealous of, but no. yeah, you know, he's got a job. He has a wife he's learned the violin for. It's very nice. Okay, well, things are about to change because this is a true crime podcast. Yeah, this has been very nice so far. The Central Liverpool Chess Club that William had co-founded met on Monday and Thursdays in the evening. And the club was housed in one of four ground floor rooms at Coddles City Cafe. Sure. On Monday, January 19th of 1931... This would be no exception. After work, William prepared to head out to the club for a match against Mr. F.C. Chandler. And Julia was sick with bronchitis. William had recovered from his bout, but now Julia's sick. And he asked Julia, should I stay home? Are you feeling okay? And she said, nope, go ahead. Go go ahead and, and go to the chess club. Just don't stay too long afterwards chatting. Just, you know, kind of come home kind of quick. But go. You do you, okay. right? That's nice. Yeah. William headed out, but something strange was already happening at the chess club. A waitress at the cafe, Gladys Harley, answered the telephone. The caller, according to Gladys, had a, quote, an ordinary man's voice. Not nervous or agitated, end quote. Okay. The caller asked for Mr. Wallace. Gladys went in search of Samuel Beatty, who was the captain of the chess club, to see if William had arrived yet, but he had not, and Samuel said he would speak to the caller. The phone conversation is as follows. There, do you want to do You could do this with me. You could read it with me. Okay, let me pull it up then. Am I the caller or am I a Beatty? So you can be either. Which one would you prefer? The caller is the mysterious person. Ah, uh, can I be the caller? Yes. Although he's perfectly normal on the phone. Yes, he is. Okay. The phone conversation was as follows in this dramatic reenactment. God, I wish I had an English accent. I know, right? Is Mr. Wallace there? No. Can you give me his address? I'm afraid I can't. Oh, but will he be there? He may or may not. If he's coming, he will be here shortly. I suggest you bring him up later. Oh, no, I can't. I'm too busy. I've got my girl's 21st birthday party on, and I want to see Mr. Wallace on a matter of a business. It's something in the nature of his business. End scene. I'm just imagining from um, a Bojack Horseman where it's <laughs> the three kids in a, in a trench coat. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, shit. Anyways, that was my very bad British accent. And that was just my, like, nothing. <laughs> it kind of veered into 20s a little bit, but it was fun. So the caller, a.k.a. Hannah at this point, hey! asked Samuel to pass along a message to William since he's not there. So the message is requesting that William visit him the following evening at 7.30 p.m. 
and the caller left his name and address. His name? R. M. Qualtroff. Okay, that's me. Right. Yes. Normal name. And he lived at 25 Men Love Gardens East. Did you say Men Love Gardens? Men Love Gardens East. Okay. And I will say it many more times because it's so fun. <laughs> okay. <laughs> William arrived at the cafe at about 7.45 that evening. William's opponent, however, had not shown up. So William accepted a match against Mr. McCartney and the pair sat down to play. Samuel approached their table and he reiterated this message from Mr. Qualtroff. And there was a bit of a discussion because William had never heard of this man, number one. And then Men Love Gardens had a north, a south, and a west, but not east. And they were all kind of like, okay. Weird. Weird. But William said, it's fine. I'll figure it out. And... As a side note again, so he's his collections agent for Prudential and also a salesman, you know, at the same time. And so due to his job, this call and message didn't really incite any concern on William's part because he figured it was probably just someone who was new to the area and in need of insurance. And he had a lot of clients, so people might have dropped his name and told them, like, you know, I mean, he lives in the community he works in, right? Mm-hmm. So they're like, yeah, you know, give William a call. He's often at the Chef's Club on Monday and Thursdays, you know. This wouldn't mm-hmm. be, like, he wouldn't be necessarily put off by this. Okay. William left the cafe around 10.15 that evening, and he returned home to Julia. No issue, right? Just as he said he would. He didn't fuck around afterwards. He went home. And as a side note, and I'm putting this in here because this is so appropriate to my life currently, and it absolutely fucking slays my heart, but Julia was not only sick with bronchitis at this time, but her beloved black cat, Puss, was missing. Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay. Oh, no. I'm going to just throw this out here, and I have a couple other tidbits about Puss later, but anyways. Okay. Puss was missing. The following morning began much like every other day. William left home around 10.30 a.m. to start his rounds of collection and sales. It was a dreary day, though, and it was cold as well. And William returned home for lunch a little after 2 p.m., and he put the money he had collected so far into this little metal cash box that he kept in their living room. And then he left the house again around 3.15 p.m. to kind of continue his rounds. And a statement that was later made by a police constable, James Edward Rothwell, indicated that he had seen William around 3.30 p.m. near Maiden Lane and that William looked haggard, drawn, and unusually distressed, which is kind of weird. But yeah, that's his statement. So there you go. Also, right around 3.30, Amy Wallace, William's sister-in-law, married to his brother Joseph, She stopped by 29 Wolverton Street to check in on Julia, right? Julia's been sick, so she's just checking in to make sure she's doing okay. While they were having their visit, a bread delivery was made by the baker's son, Neil Norberry. And which I I love this. I love that they 
like get individual deliveries from. I know, just bread. And here's just milk. Well, and we'll get to the milk too. Oh God. But it's like, I, I want this. And when I went to Europe, one of my favorite things was, and we don't have a lot of this around here, I'm sure in, in some areas, they may have some of this, but really the only thing that we have would be like a meat market, right? A butcher shop. We don't have that bakery. We don't have... Like getting a fresh loaf of bread. Right? That's hard to find unless you make it yourself. Uh, And so when I went to Europe, I have family that lives in Belgium. And when I went to visit them, my favorite place on probably the planet was the cheese shop. Oh, my God. I love the cheese shop. So much cheese. And it's so good. Oh, good. And there's so many varieties. And it's like literally just wall to wall fucking cheese, which is like my heaven. I'm just like. I love it. I might eat a slice of cheese after this. I might too, actually. (laughs) Sounds really good. Anyways. It really does. Moving on. Amy left Julia around 4.30 p.m. because she had some shit to do. William arrived back home at 6 p.m., And the couple had dinner, and Julia noted that they were still waiting for their milk delivery, which was due to come between 6 and 7. And around 6.30 p.m., they got their newspaper delivery, and the milk arrived at 6.45 p.m. Julia briefly spoke with a young man named Alan before he continued on with his delivery. So, you know, there's some interaction there is what I'm trying to get at. Mm Mm-hmm. The couple then spoke about the message that William had received at the club. And Julia said, you know what? Just go. Don't pass on the opportunity to get commission. So it's not even a real address, though. He was thinking, like, maybe it was. And he wasn't super familiar with the Men Love Gardens area. (laughs) Okay. But it's still in his purview for his job. So. Okay. And so they like, they're having a conversation. They're talking about it. And he's like, yeah, I got this message. And she's like, no, it's, it's fine. Go like, it'll be fine. Okay. So a little after 645, William headed out in search of 25 men love gardens East. Okay. William went to the tram station and he inquired about Men Love Gardens East to the conductor. And have you heard of Men Love Gardens? I know, right? It sounds so weird. So William's not familiar with this area, but he figures like the conductor would have more information. So the conductor, Arthur Thompson, explained that there were three roads and two roundabouts with, you know, the Men Love Gardens North, the Men Love Gardens South, and the Men Love Gardens West. He didn't explicitly say to William that East is just non-existent, but he said, it's got to be on one of those roads, so I'm sure you'll find it. Like, leave me alone. I'm the conductor. I'm busy. (laughs) So William ended up taking three trams to get to Men Love Gardens West. And he gets off the tram and essentially he's just walking around the neighborhood talking to whoever's out and about. And again, this is like 730-ish, right? Okay. Seems like a lot, dude. But, I mean, he's used to kind of this. 
I guess so. Thing right. because of his job, right? So he's yeah. just and he's he's personable. So he's just talking to people and people are like, nah, I haven't I don't know. I haven't heard that name. I don't know who Qualtroff is. And then so he comes across this guy and his name is Sidney Green. And Sidney Green tells him flat out, there is no men love gardens east. It it's not a thing. And he said, maybe they took the information down wrong. Maybe it's Men Love Gardens West. So yeah. you should check that address. So William's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he knocks on the door of 25 Men Love Gardens West. And he spoke to this young woman named Katie Mather. And he inquired about R.M. Qualtroff. To which Katie said, nah, dude, there's nobody here by that name. <laughs> Nah, dude, get out of here. <laughs> William continues his quest to find this address or to find anyone who knows R.M. Qualtroff. So he's talking to everybody in the neighborhood. And ultimately, he was unsuccessful. He had spent so much time wandering around so this fucking neighborhood. It's nighttime. I know. He finally decides to call it a night and he returns home at 1040 p.m., and my guess is that he is somewhat frustrated and pretty exhausted after this, essentially, a wild goose chase. I mean, yeah, what the fuck was that? At night. Yeah. Work your nine to five and then stop fucking working. But, I mean, for them, it wasn't a nine to five. This was just kind of... I know, I'm just projecting. I know. <laughs> it's fine. So, William gets home and he tries his key in the front door, but it doesn't work. So he's thinking, well, maybe Julia did the deadbolt, which they don't have the lock for. It, you know, there's not a key for the deadbolt at that time. Oh, okay. Right? So he's like, okay, well, that's weird. So he's knocking and Julia doesn't answer, but he's like, oh, she's been sick. So like maybe she went to bed. And so he goes kind of around back to like get into the back door. And this is where he runs into his neighbor's John and Florence Johnston. John Johnston. Come on, parents. <laughs> and I'm hoping she went by Flo, but anyways. William told them, like, he's like, I don't know. I just got home. I My key is not opening the front door. You know, Julia's been sick. She's not answering. I'm going to go try the back door. And they're concerned. They want to make sure William can get inside and that he doesn't need to, like, go use their phone or something to call the house or anything like that. So they're kind of, like, waiting outside. So William goes in the back door and they hear him call out to Julia. And then they hear him cry out. Quote, and this is so fucking weird. Quote, come and see. She's been killed. End quote. That is weird. It is. That's not what I would have said. Right. Come and see. She's been killed. I know. It's weird. She could have just died from bronchitis, number one. No. No, she couldn't have. <laughs> well, I'm just saying he said killed. And she could have died naturally. Oh, it was very obvious? It was very obvious. We'll, we'll, okay. we'll get there. Okay, never mind. Come and see. Come and see, right? Which is, it's just, I don't know. It's bizarre, but I don't know. Maybe that's how they talk. I don't know. Anyways, so Julia was found uh, laying on her right side diagonally across the rug in their parlor in a pool of blood, brain tissue, and bone. All right, yeah, that's not natural causes. Got it. 
She had been bludgeoned to death. Julia's cause of death would later be listed as a fracture to the skull caused by an unknown instrument, and clearly the manor is homicide, or whatever they call it over there. Yeah, whatever. John Johnston, he's like, I'm going to go get the police. Good plan. Good plan, John Johnston. On a side note, and I told you we would come back to this, Puss arrived home about the same time <gasps> as the police did. Oh my god, but then... I know. Julia, she's gone. Yeah. So she died, thought I where Puss was? I hate that. However, and I'm just going to throw this in here. There was a book written later about Julia's murder, and they had referred to William. Okay, so number one, in the book, they say how it was odd that he would pet the cat while he was being interviewed, like when the police were there. But I don't think that's odd at all. I don't think that's weird at all. I think people just who don't understand what having Two a cat, cat ladies talking right <laughs> like it's perfectly I would be I would be holding my cat if something tragic happened I hold my you cat like when I'm push sad, him away right but I hold my cat when he doesn't want to be held well exactly Consent. well I call it unwanted unconditional love <laughs> and it is what I it also, is <laughs> I also do yell at them I love you do you know how much I love you and they never respond <laughs> right like why are you yelling at us it's out of love <laughs> like i just love you so much but in this book and i'm adding this in there because i found this completely fucking hilarious i did not read this book but in the book they refer to william as a quote compulsive cat stroker end quote <laughs> that can go a lot of ways my friends not in the bad way but like like, he was just oh. known to, like, pet cats. That's really sweet. There's a better way to say that, but that's very sweet. Right? But, yeah, I, I, I'm, i like, compulsive cat stroker. I can't that. not mention this. No, no, you can't. <laughs> Wording here is a, is a, a problem. <laughs> right? Anyways, so, as or all... Or phrasing. Phrasing. That's what it's from, mm-hmm. Archer. Phrasing. So, as always, the husband is the first suspect, and William would end up making four separate voluntary statements to the police at the CID, which is the Criminal Investigation Department. William told them the story about R.M. Qualtroff and his quest to find him. Police were able to actually track down the telephone booth, but they call it a box. So, the telephone box, where the call was made, but it's a dead end. There's not... I mean, there's not anything they can do to figure out who was in the booth at the time. It did say that, you know, I mean, they may have done fingerprints at that time. I don't know. Anyways, again, we're back in the 1930s. Yeah. So police were pretty much convinced that it was William. And forensic, or as forensic as it could be in 1931, forensic examination revealed that the killer would literally need to be covered in blood, bone, and brain tissue, and William's suit was 100% clean. Yeah. There was nothing on him. But no one noticed somebody covered in blood, brain, or whatever leaving that house either. Correct. But, like, when William showed up, right, he runs into the neighbors, and he there's nothing on him, like, you know. Oh, yeah. So, you know, there's that. And then... 
there was one single drop of blood found on the toilet seat in the bathroom. But investigators, like, checked the drains and everything else, and there was no blood in the drains. So they didn't know if this was actually from the killer or if it was, like, a cross-contamination of the investigators on the scene. Like, it it could happen. Mm Mm-hmm. William vehemently denied murdering Julia. Well, doesn't he have an alibi? He does. Okay. He does. All those people he talked to. He talked to a shit ton of people. But again, police are like, hmm, but you're the husband. This is early in the investigation, too. Kind of. No. Okay, never mind. <laughs> it went on for, you know, a little while, but the police were pretty zeroed in on... William, even though they didn't really have the evidence to substantiate it, but he was charged on April 22nd of 1931 with murder. Wow. And the Prudential Staff Union, they actually supported William's defense. So they're like, hey, buddy, we got you. He's like, thank you, because I was on the job. Right? (laughs) However, within one hour... And there, and so you can go in and you can read like actual court transcripts that have been t- transcribed. Like there's a ton of information. I did not go into that to save some time on this episode. There's a, so much information. But essentially, after an hour, the jury found William guilty. Whoa, really? And he was sentenced to death. Wow. It's a tough crowd, right? That is a tough fucking crowd. However... And this is why I refer to William as the luckiest man in England in May of 1931. So just, you know, a few weeks later, the Court of Criminal Appeals reviewed the evidence. They reviewed the case files. They reviewed the testimony and they quashed William's conviction on the grounds that it could not be supported having regard to the evidence. So the decision of the court was substantiated by the fact that the jury was wrong in the terms of the law because there was actually no physical evidence to prove that William was the one who committed this murder. So they're like, uh-uh, jury, you got this fucking wrong. Okay. And William was set free. I still, I think he's okay. Right. He has alibis. All those people he was talking to is trams away. Right? Three trams away in some random men love gardens neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) So Prudential, right? They put up the money for his defense and they were like, no, we got you, dude. That's very nice. It is. William returns to his job, but it was decided that due to the public's opinion of William's guilt, That it would be best for everyone if William did not return to work in the field, but instead they found him a clerical position where he did not have to interact with the public at all. And William still received quite a bit of fan mail uh, and physical threats by members of the community. When walking around, William would often be taunted as people yelled, quote, Killy Willy, end quote. (laughs) Not a bad, not a bad thing to yell at someone if they were actually a killer. Killy Willy? I love it. I know. I did too. 
Eventually, though, it would just become too much for William, and he decided that yeah. it would be best to move out of Liverpool. So he moved to Bromborough, which is about 10 miles south of Liverpool. So not far. But, I mean, again, we're back in the 30s, so any yeah, amount of that's... travel would take longer. It's not like you're just hopping in your car, right? Mm-hmm. William did continue to work for Prudential, and he continued to experience these chronic kidney issues. He actually declined a surgery that would have prolonged his life, and some of his close friends and family would say he just really didn't have the will to live anymore after Julia's death. So Julia died. Mm -hmm. He's been dealing with this his entire life, too. Like, yeah, and if he didn't kill Julia and she was actually the love of his life, then... Yeah, I you can kind of see it. So February 26th of 1933, less than two short years later, mm-hmm. William died from urea, which is that raised level in the blood of urea and other waste compounds that the kidneys would filter if they were working usually properly. Filter. Yeah, yeah, usually filter. And then pyelonephritis, which is the inflammation of the kidney due to bacterial infection. So Essentially, William died of kidney failure. And sepsis, it kind of sounds like. It sounds sexist? Sepsis. Oh, I'm like, sexist? I don't see how it's sexist. Only men have kidneys. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, all right. So sad. And then, of course, there are some theories. So I'm going to just bring up the big, the main theory, right? So you remember... Richard Gordon Perry and Joseph Caleb Martinson, the embezzlers, right? I had forgotten about them, but I do now remember. Mm -hmm. So it was theorized that Perry, at least Perry, had attempted to rob William's cash box. And so he broke into the house and then Julia had disrupted his plans. And then he murdered her and fled without the cash box, but... You know, if you brutally murder someone in that fashion, you might be a little freaked out and forget why you were actually there in the first place. Maybe. Did William catch them embezzling? Are they just overall just bad dudes? So he noted some discrepancies in their records, but he never turned them in. He just, he noted them for his records, but ultimately there was nothing he could do about it. Okay. He didn't like say, oh, they're embezzling. But I mean, it was assumed that they were embezzling but so later it was discovered by roger wilkes in 1981 so he was doing a radio program on the 50th anniversary of julia's murder and so he had discovered through his investigative research that perry had actually been seen that night at a local garage washing out his car with like a pressure washer and the mechanic who was on site at the garage had noticed a pair of gloves that were soaked in blood. But at the time, Perry had a girlfriend who had given him an alibi. And it was years later when this girlfriend would actually recant this alibi was like, no, we we weren't together. But so, but at the time he had, he had this alibi, right? So in 1966, it was actually Jonathan Goodman. He wrote, he was the author for The Killing of Julia Wallace. And him and one of his friends, they were like out, you know, investigating this for the book. 
and they went to interview Perry at his home. Oh, he's still alive. Oh, my God. Well, no, Perry's dead. But oh. <laughs> Sorry. This was, like, way back in the day, too. So uh, I know. So, but, so this was 1966. Perry was still alive. So they go, they, they're talking with Perry. Oh, yeah. That's what I'm saying. In 1966, he was still alive. Yes. So this author, Jonathan Goodman, he's like, the fuck, man? Like, you know way too much about, like. Oh, yeah. The crime. Everything. Like, witnesses that were in the neighborhood. Like, this is totally sketchy as shit. And then Perry made the statement, quote, I will never talk about it, not even if you were to offer me 2,000 pounds, end quote. Okay. Did he offer 2,000 pounds? He did not offer 2,000 pounds. He's like, fuck you, dude. He's like, okay, no. (laughs) And then Perry ended up dying in 1980. No one was ever charged in the death of Julia Wallace, and this case remains unsolved. And like I said earlier, there are some super sleuths out there that have way much more time than I do (laughs) to investigate and research and look into, you know, ancestry and also into old court documents. Like there's some, you could go down this rabbit hole for months, months at a time. I did not have that luxury. So this is what I have brought for you tonight. And I really feel like it is a true murder mystery. I'm going to go with Perry for now. Right. I haven't done any other research. I think there was not necessarily evidence, but there was like a a better theory there for Perry's guilt. I guess so. I still don't really think he had that great of a reason to go to the house in the first place. But if he had been... William's subordinate had probably been over for dinner or something like that and knew where William kept his cash box and knew that... That he would have cash in it that night? Well, because also, right, he gets this call from this mysterious Mr. Qualtroff, right? Yes. So who's to say that that wasn't Perry getting William out of the house and assuming yeah, maybe sure. Julia wouldn't be there or whatever... That's a bad assumption. Because he literally, like, went on this fucking wild goose chase to find this address that's similar to the area but doesn't actually exist. And, like, he was, I, I don't know. I just think it's it's way more likely that William was a pawn in this scheme for I whatever reason. it's way reason. more likely that Perry is guilty than William is guilty. Mm-hmm. I still don't 100%, like, the motive i don't think william did it i think i can safely say they were a very nice couple Mm -hmm. i guess so i guess if perry was really desperate well and it did say that he liked to live a lavish lifestyle he had been terminated from prudential i was gonna ask so if he had been terminated from prudential then that is a stressor and it wasn't necessarily right at the same time but he could have been like holding on to that anger I'm going to, like, stick it to this guy and I'm going to steal his cash box. But, I don't know, it's all conjecture. I am on William's side. I do not believe that William murdered Julia. So, because I do not believe that William murdered Julia, I am going to talk about the positive traits of a Virgo. (laughs) Honestly, he does have a lot of good Virgo traits. Oh, yeah. 
Virgos are known to be hardworking, which William was very hardworking. Mm-hmm. They are known to be reliable. William was very reliable. They are known to be patient, and they're also known to be kind. And from everything that I've read, that's exactly what William was. He was patient, and he was kind. And yeah, I really think he exemplifies these really positive traits of Virgos. And then specifically for Julia, right? So Virgos in the romance department, they really thrive on a deep and intellectual connection with their partner. Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. He learned the violin for her. And and that's another cool trait about Virgos is that because they are very supportive and loyal to their partners, they also take a very deep interest in them. And they actually make this very genuine effort to get to know their partner's interests. And they kind of incorporate that into the relationship. And, and he... Very nice. Totally you know, demonstrates this with his, you know, his want to learn to play the violin so he can accompany Julia on their musical evening. So I feel like... And he was already into music, but like Mm -hmm. learning the violin is a whole thing. And he specifically set out to do that for Julia and not like to impress her, but to participate. share like with this aspect of her life with her. God damn it, Virgos. So Virgos are known to be subtle so they're not this they're not like leos right they're not going to be this very prideful look at me look at me it's not like over the top but it's like to me it it feels like more of a real thing that they actually are trying to get to know you on all the things they're not just gonna buy you chocolates or flowers right or take you on a grand date they're gonna like learn your favorite foods and make it for you or they're gonna tailor their knowledge take you to you know, an indie bookstore, if that's what you really like, or a crystal shop, right? if that's what you're into, and they might not be as much. I think for William's case, though, I think that he they had a nice balance, so... I think so, too. I think that was a very nice relationship. Right, because she's not, like, she's like, go do your chess thing. I want nothing to fucking do with it. But you go do it. You enjoy it, and you have that part of your life, and and then just, you know, come home, and then we'll do our thing, you know? I mean, she could have been a Virgo, too, because they're also, like, totally comfortable with you having your own life, too. Like, mm-hmm. they don't need to be there all the time with you. They might appreciate some time alone, you know? I probably should have done a comparison. Julia, I didn't. She was a Taurus. That's a good combo to mm-hmm. Earth. She sounds like she was, she like home. She was comfortable there. She was a solid support. Yeah. You know, she's like, yeah, go play with the boys. Come back to see me when you're done. And he came back when he was done. You know, he didn't fuck around. So that sounds very nice. They did at least get a lot of time together. They did. They had many years together. I just, this whole thing is just such a fucking mystery. And like I said, If you're interested, there are so many different rabbit holes, so many different theories that you can go down. There are people that have like, I don't know, some sort of like inheritance that allows them this time. I don't have that luxury. Oh, yes. (laughs) We don't have that. But this was this was a super interesting case. I really loved reading about both William and Julia. And the protagonist probably isn't a bad guy for once. I know. It's actually a pretty healthy relationship, it sounds like. They sound very sweet. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, it didn't end well, but... Life sucks sometimes. We all die. Yeah. Alone. And then I just, I have a few tidbits for astrology. There's actually quite a lot going on next week, but I'm just going to cover a couple. This episode is going to air on July, I just went cross-eyed, July 25th. (laughs) And on Tuesday, July 26th, Mercury in Leo will be square with Mars in Taurus. And this day is going to bring a level of paranoia as the lion and the bull butt heads. So It probably will be best to just avoid people (laughs) on this day. Like, tempers are going to be... That's my most common advice. It's just, like, avoid people. Avoid people. Except for your uh, Queen of Cups summer. Exactly. Enjoy your friends. Thursday, July 28th, there will be a new moon in Leo. And this is when our inner child comes out to play. This is a very... sure energetic and pleasurable new moon so it's a good time to be creative and it i think all over will be a pretty good day it's your inner child so like you can kind of maybe dream those dreams that you kind of put aside for a while because you became an adult but it sucks i fucking hate it and then on sunday we'll just end this week on a high note and we'll skip all the other bullshit that's going on (laughs) The sun in Leo will be trine with Jupiter in Aries, and this is going to be a very lucky day that is filled with success and big opportunities. So keep that in mind. My Sundays really just are at home, so I don't know how this is really applicable to me, but for all you extroverts out there, really enjoy Sunday, July 31st. I was going to say, maybe I'll get a job. But probably not. They probably won't send me an offer on Sunday. So. Maybe, maybe not. Might be something else. So Hannah and I are both sweating profusely and we are going to call this an episode. So if we you, are. If you are also sweating profusely. Let us know. No. Oh. Uh, no. <laughs> okay. There needs to be a separate like Hannah at truecrimetrine@gmail.com that you can send all the weird shit to. Yeah, just put Hannah in the subject line. And, oh yeah, and then that'll work too. And then I will just save those for her, so that'll be great. I want to know all of it. Yes, but if you would like to reach out to us on any other topic, or if you feel like William was guilty, tell me why. I just I don't feel like he was, but. We are seeing it. on Twitter at True Trine, on Instagram at True Crime Trine, Facebook, TCT Podcast. You can also hit us up on Discord if you've signed up for that. You can email us directly at truecrimetrine at gmail.com. And then check out our website, www.truecrimetrine.com. I may or may not have a sprained ankle when you hear this. We will see. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Music for our podcast was handcrafted by the talented and creative minds of Mike Warren and Pete Ortega. Our artwork was imagined and skillfully designed by the lovely Sarah Guest. As for production, well, they call me post-production. Show notes are available upon request. Just email truecrimetrine at gmail.com. Join us again next week for another tantalizing episode.